Turn with me to the second chapter of Genesis, and we'll begin the next chapter in the story of man. I used to have in my library one of the Time Life series entitled The Story of Man, and on the, in the front uh, section there was a fold-out sheet that described the evolutionary process of man from uh, simple primate, like a very small monkey, through various stages of evolution, through different types of uh, hominids, and finally to uh, Homo erectus, man who stands up tall, and then Homo sapiens, man who knows, all, all wise men. And uh, this is their reconstruction of the, of the development of, of man. He uh, stuck his claws into the ooze and crawled out, and he's been crawling ever since, uh, making it on his own until he becomes president of the corporation. He's a Shenley man from ooze to booze in only four and a half million years. That's the story of man. Uh, I'm not trying to ridicule evolutionists because we need to love scientists who hold evolutionary view very much as we love anyone. But uh, what we need to understand is that underlying the evolutionary point of view is a set of, of, of presuppositions, of beliefs about life and things. And uh, essentially is that man is self-made. Man can do it alone. He doesn't need God. He has everything that he needs to, uh, to face life and its demands. And that's fundamentally the philosophy of the world. If you want to boil worldliness down to its essence, that's what it is. It's, it's the idea that man can be man apart from God. But uh, we know from Scripture that man can only be man when he knows God and is related to God. It takes God to be a man. And that's, uh, that's the message of these opening chapters of Genesis. Now let's look at chapter 2 at the second account of the creation of man. We can divide this chapter into two very obvious divisions. Verses 4 through 17 describe the making of man. And verses 18 through 25, the making of woman. Now let's begin with verse 4, the account of the creation of man. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And as I've said before, this opening statement properly belongs to what goes before. It's really the tagline for the uh, first creation account given in chapters 1. Then we began the second account with the second line of verse 4. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the first thing I want you to uh, observe is that we have a new name for God in this account. In chapter 1, the general name, the generic name for God, Elohim, the name that's used not only by the Israelites, but also by all the pagan nations is used. God saw, God said, those, uh, that's, that's the general name for God, the sovereign creator God. But in chapter 2, you have a different name. It's the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, or as most of us remember, Jehovah Elohim. This is God's name in contrast to the general title that's given to him in chapter 1. Now, the, now Moses' point in chapter 2 is that the Lord who creates man is the Lord who cares for man. 
Moses uh, knew from his experience at the burning bush the name of God and what it stood for. This is the Lord who is, the Lord who is everything that man needs to be what God has called him to be. And this is the Lord that called us into being. So uh, we, were, we were handcrafted by a Lord who cared, who began life in his hands. Uh, most of the religions of the ancient world were based on trying to, to get God to care about you. But uh, the Bible begins from that point of view that God already cares about you. You don't have to try to, to make yourself more presentable. God already cares. He loves you. You've been handcrafted and made by God for a special purpose. This is the same Lord that David speaks of when he says, Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, when I was in college, back in Texas, I used to work for the Johnny Mitchell Company. They made uh, cotton cleaning equipment and uh, Mark IV air conditioners and things like that. And I was sort of a lower echelon peon. I worked out on the docks driving a fork truck and unloading uh, uh, boxcars taking bar stock out of boxcars. And uh, it was kind of a dirty job. I usually went home covered with cosmoline from head to toe, and it was just the sort of job that nobody wanted to do, and I got stuck with it. Uh, it just happens that the uh, president of the company was a man that I knew. His name was Orville Mitchell, Jr. And uh, we both were, were involved in Young Life. We had clubs, and he had been involved in the founding of Young Life and had heavily supported it in its beginning years and at this uh, particular time was leading a Young Life Club, and we used to meet together in leadership meetings. And even though he was about 25 or 30 years my senior and he was president of this company, to me he was just Orb. And uh, to him I was Dave. And uh, very often I'd be working out on the docks, and he would walk by, and the men that were with me would say, oh, here comes the boss, and they'd start working a little harder. And I'd just keep right on doing whatever I was doing. And he'd walk into the box car, and he'd say, hi, Dave. And I'd say, hi, Orb. And he'd go on back to his office. And I was just kind of down there on one of the lower levels, and he was president of the company, but to me he was Orv. We were friends. And that's what God wants us to know from this account. The Lord who created us is a Lord that we can know. He's the covenant-keeping, loving God of Israel, who's our shepherd, and he cares about us. Now that's the first thing I want you to observe. The second thing I want you to see is that Moses does in this account what he does in chapter 1. He begins with by describing the conditions that predated creation. We saw that from uh, verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 1. Uh, in verse 4, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but a stream came up and watered the face of the land. Now, these were the conditions that existed prior to the creation of man. Now, he's not here saying that the creation of, of plant life occurred after the creation of man. That would be, in, in, uh, it would be contradictory to chapter 1. What he's, what he's referring to here is not plant life in general, but, but plants that are cultivated. The point is that no cultivation was going on because there was no rain. And uh, there's no rain in this part of, of the land. He's not here saying that there was no land, no rain anywhere on the earth. But in this part of the land where Eden was, there was no rain. There was only an upsurging from the deep. That is, there were only springs and rivers. And, and there was no one there to cultivate the soil. And there was no one there to irrigate the crops. There was no man. You see, these are the conditions that preceded and made necessary 
the creation of, of man, your prior conditions. Now the point that I think uh, we, uh, can be drawn from this passage is that God wants us to cooperate with him in what he's doing. It was God's intention that man make the world into a garden. He planted a garden in Eden, and he put man in the garden, and he gave him a charge to make the whole world into a garden, to create a garden out of his world first and then perhaps the whole universe. God was going to do it, but he was going to do it through man. And that's the story that's told all the way through Scripture. And God has, has planned it so that we can cooperate with what he's doing in the world. That's even true of salvation. And it's true of, of, the, of, of our work in the world to make the world a more beautiful place to live in. I'm sure you've heard the story of the man who was uh, he's walking through the middle of, uh, of a neighborhood and he saw a beautiful flower garden in someone's front yard. And the man was out uh, working in his garden and he said, my, that's a, that's a lovely garden. Look what God has done. The man said, well, you should have seen it when God had it all by himself. <laughs> and uh, the point, of course, is that, that God does, in some sense, work out his plan for the world through us. And uh, here was an area that God had prepared for man, which man could cultivate and which he could make more fruitful. Now, the third thing that we're told in this account of creation is something of, of man's unique creation. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. That is, he became a, a person. Now, what Moses does here is use verbs to convey the same idea that he uses in chapter 1, that, that he does in chapter 1 through nouns. There he describes man as created in the image and the likeness of God. That's his uniqueness. Those are nouns. But here he does it through verbs. He forms man out of dirt. The word that's translated dust here, and, and we're used to using that term, actually means dirt or clods. He takes raw earth, just as you would go out in the backyard and get your hose out and, and wet down a section of the earth and make, make a little man out of it, form it, hand shape it. That's what God did. And the word that's translated formed is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for the activity of a potter. He takes raw earth and he creates something, something exquisite out of it. And that's what God did. He handcrafted us. And he breathed into us his life, and we became a person. Um, I remember hearing a story of a little boy who was told in Sunday school that man was made out of the dust of the earth. And he happened to look under his bed, and he saw all these dust bunnies under there. And he went running down to his mother in the kitchen, and he said, Mother, mother, there's a man under my bed, but I can't tell whether he's coming or going. <laughs> you see, in... In the Old Testament, the word for man, Adam, is based on the Hebrew word for earth, Adamah. It's very much, uh, well, the counterpart in, in English would be the formation of earthling from earth. We would say, we will call his name earthling because he's made out of the earth. So whenever that name was used, it was a reminder of the stuff from which God made man. We we're just dirt, just clods, just dust. And as I've said before, no one's made out of super dust. We're all made out of the same stuff. God took us from the dust of the ground, and he formed us, and he made us something significant. 
tells us that uh, the significance in our life comes from God. He's the one who makes man what he is, who gives him dignity. And our worth and our value and our dignity comes from our relationship uh, with him. It's also a good reminder that uh, we're all just made out of dust. And uh, we should never be disappointed or discouraged when we act out of our humanity, out of our dust, and we're not what we think we should be. The only time we can be what God intends us to be is when we live from the life of God, when we depend upon Him and trust Him. But when we don't, we just revert to dust, and our activities are just as valueless and just as empty. And, of course, the Lord knows that. David says in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. And here he uses the same word that he uses in in Genesis 2 for our formation. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. You know, God is never disappointed in us when we act in the flesh and we fail. Because he knows, it's predictable, how we're going to act. He remembers that we're dust. Our, um, our strength, our ability to be God's men and women, to be what God has called us to be, that rises out of our relationship with God and our dependence upon him. So that, uh, those verses, verses 4 through 7, describe for us the creation of man. Then in verses 8 through 14, we have a description of, of man's environment. Uh, the Goodriches came by our house the other night, and they brought a little booklet that the state of Idaho produces that uh, has pictures of all the scenic grandeur of Idaho. And the title of the booklet is uh, What the Rest of the World Would Like to Be, which uh, may sound a little bit presumptuous, but I'm sure there are lots of, of places in the world that would like to be Idaho. And uh, certainly it's a, it's a beautiful state and a great place to be. I think what Moses is doing here is portraying for us where the rest of the world would like to be. It's an ideal environment. If you, could sit, if, if you were an ancient man and you sat down and you drew up a, a description of the kind of environment that would be best for you, this is, what, this is the way you would picture it. And this is the way God created it for man. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. In Eden. Notice this is not the Garden of Eden. Eden was not the name of the garden. It's a garden in Eden. The word Eden means plain. And uh, somewhere in the, in the lower part of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, just north of the Persian Gulf, there was a vast plain. And somewhere in that area, God planted a garden. East, in the east. Everything in the Bible is from the, the reference point is Palestine, so it's east of Palestine. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it divided. It had four head streams. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. 
The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. He begins by describing this, um, this environment as a garden. Now, when we think of gardens, we think of vegetable gardens, and uh, they're usually out in, in the open. But in the ancient world, a garden was an enclosed place. It had walls. So this is a picture of a, of a walled garden where there's security and safety. Now, we know from reading on into chapter 3 and beyond, we've read the end of the book, we know that there was an enemy on the outside. So here is a wall that protects the man from the outside world. He's secure, safe in this garden. Secondly, we're told that God caused to grow all manner of trees, ornamentals, trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food, trees that produce edible uh, fruit. And in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. And we know from chapter 3 that the tree of life sustained physical life. Adam would have lived forever if he had continued to eat from the tree. After he fell, God excluded him from the garden, lest he eat of the tree, we're told, and live forever. So uh, he's barred from eating the tree, so his physical life won't continue. Adam had, had eternal life in a spiritual sense. Uh, he was redeemed. God offered a sacrifice, and uh, he was regenerated. He belonged to God in a spiritual sense, but his physical life came to an end when he was barred from the garden. But had he remained in the garden, he would have lived forever. He would have been immortal. And secondly, we're told of another tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm not going to try to explain what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is uh, this Sunday. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. It's enough to say that this tree is symbolic of the sort of knowledge that man needs to cope with life. The sort of wisdom that's necessary to, to, to face the demands of life and live it properly. And that tree was there in the middle of the garden, as we'll see in a moment. The man was prohibited from eating that particular tree because God had another plan for teaching man how to live life. He didn't need to learn on his own or experience life in all of its facets, both good and evil, in order to, to learn how to cope with things. God had a better plan through revelation. He would let man know. So he was not to experience these things on his own. But the tree was there alongside the other trees. And then in verse 10 and following, there was a, a vast river system that watered the garden. Now, that doesn't mean a great deal to us. But uh, if you lived in those times and in that place, it would mean a great deal because it seldom rains. And uh, they're dependent upon these, uh, these rivers for irrigating their crops. And we're told that in this, in this place, there was a vast river system, a fourfold river system that watered the garden, and there was gold, and there was aromatic resin, and there was the onyx stone, precious stones there. And uh, the entire picture, it's a composite picture of a perfect environment. It's everything that man could possibly want. And then in verses 15 through 17, uh, man is given a vocation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And the first thing we're told about man's vocation is that he was to work, and he was to work hard. 
God gave him a plot of ground and uh, resources to irrigate that piece of land, and he was told to work. So work is not the result of the fall. Uh, we're told after the fall, work became burdensome, and uh, the land didn't yield as it should. But work in itself is not a part of the curse. God always intended for men to work. Uh, sloth is a sin. Laziness is a sin. It shouldn't be subsidized. Paul says, if a man will not work, neither will he eat. Now, there may be reasons why men can't work. But uh, if we can work, there's no reason why we shouldn't work. Because that's a part of God's calling. Uh, many of us have been in, in situations either where, when we're laid off or uh, we lost our job for some reason or another, or even on vacation, you start feeling a little bit restless and uneasy because you don't have anything to do. And uh, you begin to, to, to doubt your, your self-worth after a while. Well, that's very natural because it is God's intention that we do something with our environment, that we make the world a, a more comfortable, more uh, lovely, a more fruitful place in, in which to live. So that's the first uh, part of, of our call, we're to work. And then we're told that the man was to take care of the garden. The word actually means to guard it, to watch over it, to protect it. And we can understand that, that command on two levels. One is the physical level. A man is to take care of his environment. He's not to destroy it, not to ruin it, not to do things that are destructive to the world around him. And uh, that pro provides something of, of a guideline for us in determining a vocation. Is the thing that we're doing making the world a better place to live? Is, does it do something for the environment, or does it destroy it and blight it and ruin it? If it does, then that's not a proper vocation. God wants us to work hard at things that, uh, that provide for our environment and to protect and watch over it. But I also think we can understand this command on another level. Uh, we're to protect our environment spiritually as well. Um, there was a snake on the outside, and he was trying to get into the garden, and the man needed to be, to be watchful and careful and to guard his environment from incursions of, of the snake. And that still is our responsibility today. The, uh, the snake makes his way into our homes through, uh, sometimes through us, through our attitudes, uh, our, our negative spirit, or a critical heart, or just being grumpy, or uncommunicative, or all sorts of things. We, we bring into our environment uh, the, the sort of destruction that, that the serpent brings. Or it may come in through someone else, through one of our children, or through our mate. And we have a responsibility to guard our garden and to protect it. Uh, Adam should have grabbed the snake when he came in and grabbed that thing around the neck and said, Look, you get into my garden again and I'm going to shove you down a gopher hole. But he didn't, see, as we'll see in chapter 3. But we should. That's, that's the responsibility that God has given to us, to protect our environment as well as to work hard for it. And then thirdly, we're told in verse 17 that the man must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For, he says, when you eat of it, you will surely die. So man is to work, and he's to watch out for his environment, and he's to walk with God. He's to obey God. That's interesting. There's only one prohibition. We think uh, God is full of rules, and uh, most of his rules are designed to 
just snuff out fun. And he's a sort of cosmic wet blanket who goes around dampening everybody's fun out and is making life miserable. There's rules and regulations. But that's not true. There's only one prohibition in the garden, one tree from which they couldn't eat. They could eat from all the other trees, but uh, not this tree because God says that if you do, it'll kill you. And that's why God is against sin. It's because he's four people. And what he prohibits, he prohibits because it'll kill us. Sin will kill you. And so uh, he prohibits it. But there's only one rule. He's to live subject to God in this, in this one uh, regard. He's not to eat of, of the tree. So he's to work hard, and he's to guard his environment, and he's to obey his Lord. Then in the verses that follow, verses 18 through 25, the making of, of woman is described. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. And there's something uh, sort of jarring about that statement because in chapter 1, God creates and he says it's good, and then he creates again and he says it's good. But now he says something is not good. Something's gone awry. Something has to be fixed. It's not right. And what's not good is that man is alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I'm sure that you recall from the King James Version that that's translated a helpmeet, and for years I wondered what in the world is a helpmeet. But it simply means a companion, someone who comes in alongside. The rabbis use this term frequently in, in their writings to describe uh, uh, someone who comes in to be a helper or a companion, a sidekick, a friend, someone with whom man can share. Uh, the uh, the job, the vocation that God has given to him. And you see, this is the point. Man needs someone who will share his destiny. He has uh, a very difficult task. He's to make the world a garden. And he's to guard it from incursions of evil. And he's to walk with God. That would be uh, his way of accomplishing that task. And he needs a companion who will help him fulfill his destiny. But he's alone. He doesn't have a companion. He doesn't have someone to nudge, someone with whom he can share his life and uh, his troubles and his problems and his struggles. So he needs a companion. So God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. But he does an interesting thing. He doesn't do it immediately. He first brings all the animals by and man names them. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field. And that, by the way, is how that verse should be translated the creation of animals precedes the creation of man now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature that was its name so the man gave names to all the livestock the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field but for Adam no suitable helper was found so um Adam begins to name the animals. That's the way we gain control over our environment. We still do it today. Scientists attempt to control their environment by classifying things, giving them names, and putting them under the right categories. That makes us feel secure when we can name something. When I first came here to Boise, I, I pointed up toward this mountain, and I said, what's that mountain? And somebody said, that's Schaefer Butte. And somehow that made me feel better, just knowing the name of that mountain. That's the way we are. We like to give titles and names, put tags on things. It's a way of, of analyzing our environment and understanding its relationship to us.
And that's what Adam is doing in naming the animals. He's establishing the relationship of this portion of God's creation to him. So if he were naming them in English, I suppose he'd start with Yardvark, and he'd work his way down to the zebra, and he'd give them all names that somehow indicated their relationship to him. This one will, will be a beast of burden. It will carry my loads. And this one will, uh, will produce wool for clothing. And this one will mow my grass for me. And uh, this one is just nice to look at. I'll just enjoy uh, the plumage on that bird and so forth. So he gave them names. But after naming them all, he discovered that, that the deficiency was still there. There was no companion. There was someone who could uh, help him clean house, and there was someone who could provide clothing for him, and there were some that provided meals, but there was no sidekick. There was no companion. No one to move in alongside with whom he could share the responsibility that God had given to him. So, verse 21. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. The word just means something from the side. And closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, Wow, we! <laughs> This is what I've been looking for all my life. <laughs> kind of loose translation there. <laughs> but that's the point. This one fills my need. This is what I've been looking for. None of the animals could do this for me. They could bear my burdens. They're ornamental. But they're not a companion. They can't share my life like this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. You see, God, or Adam, names her in relationship to him. He classifies her in a very special way. And what he does here is use what amounts to the feminine form for man. The, the masculine word for man is ish. And he calls her isha. Uh, it's very much like our word man and woman. Woman means wife of man. And it's not a bad translation, because that's what he's doing. He's playing on the word for man. And uh, the idea is that this is my counterpart. This is my companion. This is the female counterpart of, of the man. This one now will share my life, all that I am. This one will help me bear the load of, of making the world into a garden. See, that makes her something special. She's not like any of the other animals. She's not merely a beast of burden. She's not merely a bunny. She's something far more, you see. She's special. She's my companion. Now what you have in verses 24 and 25 is a commentary on, on uh, what has been revealed uh, in, the, in the preceding verses. And this is Moses' commentary. This is not a continuation of Adam's words because there was, of course, no father and mother for Eve. She was created from man. But Moses, in reflecting upon these facts, writes, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now what he's doing here is establishing the reason for marriage. The expression, leave mother and father and be united to your wife, is their way of referring to marriage. That's what marriage entails, leaving one set of authorities and uh, being joined to someone else and establishing a separate home. And that's marriage. And Moses says it's for this reason 
that you get married. That is, when you find someone, and that's not, it's not wrong to refer uh, to, the, to our actions in that way because Scripture does refer to a man finding a wife. But when you discover the partner that God has created for you, that very special person who will help you fulfill your destiny, then you marry her. That's what Moses is saying. She's there to meet man's needs, but not merely his sexual needs, not merely his needs for someone uh, to adorn him physically or to be an adornment by her beauty, but to help him fulfill the task that God has given to him. And you see, that establishes the criterion that we as men and women ought to, uh, ought to follow in choosing a mate. You know, the, the world has really sold us down the river at this point. The ideal mate in the eyes of the world is someone who looks like Farrah Fawcett Majors. And I have nothing against Farrah Fawcett Majors. Not the point. But she's the model. You see, you have to look like that. And if you look like a little drip instead of Farrah Fawcett Majors, then you don't count. You see? And the same thing goes for men. We, uh, we the, the criterion that we often use is, is beauty, physical beauty, or someone who can cook well, or someone who cleans house well. But you see, what God says is that, that the woman that, that he chooses for us is the woman who will be our companion, who will share our life, one with whom we can communicate our deepest needs, and she'll move in alongside and help us walk with God, help us work in the world, help us turn our world into a fruitful place. That's her place alongside us. And Moses said, that's why we get married. And then secondly, we're told in this passage, not only the purpose of marriage, but the place of sex. Verse 24 reads, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's a euphemism, just a delicate way of describing the sexual relationship between man and wife. That's the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. That's simply their way of referring to that act. And so what he's saying is that, that in this context, when a man leaves father and mother and he's joined to a wife, in that context, sex is good and proper and right, and it's a part of God's creation that precedes the fall. There's nothing dirty about it. God thought up sex, not Hugh Hefner. It's right, proper, and good. You see, but in the right context, it's an explosive sort of dynamic in our life, which, when controlled, uh, produces something. It energizes our life. But outside of that environment, it's destructive. It's, it's somewhat like nuclear fission. You know, if you split an atom in, a, in, a, in, in the right place in a reaction chamber in a power plant, it produces energy, and it profits everyone who comes in contact with it. But if you put it in a bomb and drop it on a city, in the wrong environment, it destroys and blights the landscape and ruins everything that it, that it comes in contact with. And that's what God is saying. It sometimes troubles people because uh, fornication is not prohibited in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament, but you never find that prohibition in the, in the Old Testament. Adultery is, but not fornication. People say, why? Well, because it's unnecessary. Genesis 2 establishes the place of sex in God's scheme of things. It belongs in a, in, a, in, a, in a love relationship between a man and a woman who are united together for life. That's its proper context. That's where it belongs. That's where it, 
it achieves its maximum power and effect belongs there. And I would say to, to you single men and women, that's God's word to us. Um, abstinence never hurt anyone. You know, the world tells us that if you don't wait, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose out. You're going to miss something very vital in life, but you won't miss anything. God has the very best for you. And he says, wait, wait. There's a proper context for it. And it's, it's in the context of marriage. There, verse 25 tells us, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now you get ashamed because of guilt and sin. And the point is, they could be naked before one another and not be ashamed of, of it because there wasn't any sin or guilt involved. But outside of that relationship, that's invariably the result. There's shame and guilt. But none in marriage. That's God's plan for us. Now let's take a quick look back. God's plan for man is that he work hard and that he watch his environment and protect it physically and spiritually. And that he walk with God. And that he do so in dependence upon the life of God. Because we're just dust. We can't do it alone. We can't uh, fulfill God's assignment by ourselves. We need the life of God. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, uh, if you are like Carolyn and me, but in our marriage there's one thing that just keeps coming back into our relationship and we think we have it handled and everything is squared away and it just keeps cropping up again you know and, and someday she'll walk into the living room and I'm lying there in the in the coils of the snake and he has me down on the floor and, and she has to beat the snake to death and the next day I find the snake wrapped around her and and we're just constantly struggling in this area and we never seem to get it once for all put away it just keeps cropping up and she asked me yesterday, why do, we just keep, why do we keep struggling in this area? Well, it's because we're dust. That's all. We're just men, mere men and women. And we need the life of God. We will fail in this area from time to time, but as we begin to depend upon his life, he'll deal with those issues in his own time and in his own way. And thirdly, we need to realize that God intends us to fulfill our destiny together. We're in this thing together. Our partner is, is given to us as a companion for life to enable us to fulfill the vocation that God has, has given to us. That's God's plan. Uh, there's a very interesting Babylonian story of creation. It's called the Gilgamesh epic. Many of you have probably read it in school or portions of it. And it contains the story of the creation of man. Man in this particular story is called Enkidu. And he's a hairy beast out in the woods and he's not a man at all. So the gods send a, a prostitute after him to seduce him, and, and by her seduction, she beca he becomes a man, fully man. And he has wisdom then to deal with life. But how different, you see, from God's way. They looked at, at life and the relationship between man and woman almost entirely on a physical level, on a sexual level. But God sees the union of man and wife as total, not only physical, but spiritual as well. And, um, and the person that God has brought into my life is my companion to enable me to be God's man in every way. We have to do it together. We're not in competition with one another. We're not there to use one another. We're not there to, um, to try to win over one another. The purpose is to be mutually supportive and encouraging to each other. Uh, it's always... Uh, 
it's, when, when you hear men and women cut each other down in public and criticize one another, and, and you know that there's that sort of attitude going on, those sort of actions and attitudes being carried on in the home, what a disruptive sort of thing it is. Uh, and, the, and the sort of uh, the terms that we use to refer to one another, my old lady and my old man, indicate with how little respect we regard one another. These are things that we pick up from the world. All the jokes about marriage. Well, he went under. There's another good man that bit the dust. And it's so easy to fall into these things and begin to say the same things and repeat the attitudes of, of the world in, in our own thinking. But you see, this is someone very special. This is my friend. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, the bride is called the friend of the bridegroom. That's my friend. That's not my old lady. I'm not going to lay a hand on her in anger. That's my friend. That's my companion. That's the one that, that God has, has given me to fulfill the destiny that he has for me. And I need to, to regard her with, with respect and to honor her. Paul says that, you know, in the New Testament. Give her honor because she's a joint heir of eternal life. If you don't, he says, your prayers will be hindered. Your spiritual li life will begin to collapse. You'll have nothing on a spiritual level if you don't honor her and respect her and give her what, uh, what, what she's worthy of. See, that's the viewpoint that God takes. That's my companion. And you may say, well, that's all well and good, but I've gone too far. Our marriage is uh, on the rocks. It's beyond the point of any return. There's no way we can salvage what we have left. But we have a God who can repair anything. If he can bring order out of chaos on the physical realm, in the physical realm, he certainly can do it in a spiritual realm. He can put any marriage back together. The choice is ours. It depends on, on whether we want to align ourselves with, with God's way of doing things or not. We can go on in rebellion and resist it, or we can choose to be God's men and women. It's always interesting to me that, that the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, never psychologize. They never say, well, you're the kind of rat you are in your home because you didn't have any role models. It's your father's fault, you see. They never explain our behavior on those terms. The apostles say, stop doing it. Stop being bitter and resentful and hostile toward your partner. Knock it off. Love her as Christ loves the church. The only, way they, the only reason they can say that is because the cross renders us powerful. We're no longer impotent. We can choose to be what God wants us to be. And by God's strength, we can be that. So the answer to rebuilding a home is to start loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Begin to express your love. Begin to do the things for her that you did originally that indicate your love. And begin to woo her and win her back. And the answer for you women is to stop criticizing your husband. Stop undermining his masculinity. Begin to support him and encourage him and pray for him and help him and listen to him. And for you men to begin to communicate your lives and share what you're thinking. And let your wife get involved in what you're doing. The world, again, has sold us out by telling us that man does his thing, he goes out in the world, kills dragons, and does all kinds of heroic things. And women stay home, and they wash dishes and die for kids, and they do all those things. And that's your world, and this is mine. But God says, no, we're in this thing together. That's your sidekick. What you do, you do together. She may not be able to go out into the world with you and slay dragons, but you can come back and tell her what you're thinking and where you're hurting and, and learn from her and gain support and encouragement from her. 
And the word of Scripture is say no to what's been going on in the past and begin to do what God has called you to do. And he'll give you the strength to do it. And then perhaps some may say, well, um, we're not married. Where does that leave us? We don't have a partner. Well, it's interesting to me that when God set out to provide a mate for the man, he put the man to sleep. And I think there's something to be learned from that. And uh, it's just this, men, don't hustle. Don't go out looking. Just be God's man. You know, the, the most instructive word in this regard to men is Paul's words to young men. He says, young men, treat the young women like sisters. And how do you treat your sister? What sort of things do you do with her? Where do you take her? What do you do for her? Or should do for her? That's what you should do for these girls. Not exploit them. Not arouse expectations that you never hope to fulfill. Never use them or manipulate them. But just care for them like you would your own sister. And wait until God brings into your life the person of his choice. He knows what your needs are, so don't hustle. Just wait. And then perhaps there may be some who will never marry, and your question is, what about us? Does that leave us out in the cold? Not good to be alone? Does that mean that my life will be spent uh, in some sort of futile and, and wasted uh, endeavor? No, not at all. Because God will be your partner. God may choose some to go through life single. That is a call. And Paul tells us that if that's your call, then God will supply your, your, your needs out of his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He'll fulfill you in every way. You won't miss out on a thing. Now let's pray, shall we? And let's ask the Lord to begin to deal with some of these bad attitudes in our lives. We all have them the way we feel sometimes toward our, our wives or husbands. Let's ask the Lord to give us the courage to judge these things and begin to love them as Christ loved the church. And you men, would you ask the Lord to teach you creative ways to express your love for your wives? And you women, will you ask the Lord to restore your confidence in your men? and to be willing to give them the sort of encouragement and support that they need. And Father, we thank you that you're adequate for all things. We're very grateful that, that you're the one who, who tells us how life is to be lived. And we want to trust you to live it that way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.